0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com.
1: Okay, well, we're ready to roll. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for coming out on what we Scots call a Driech Day. Uh and I'd like to welcome you to EI if this is your first visit and welcome back if it isn't. Uh, the basic housekeeping is that this uh, thought for the day is uh, going to be interesting for us all and will be iPodded. Uh, so don't say anything you don't want to say. see in print as Mrs. Burko was not told last week. Um, suffice to say that um, the um, rumour that she's not here because she couldn't get out of bed this morning is not true <laughs> and uh, I'm only sorry that uh, we won't be seeing her with her clothes on. Uh, anyway, welcome. We've got, I'm very grateful to three speakers today who, who are here to entertain us and hopefully to get our thought buds going for the day. I should also say by the way if you want to tweet that the Twitter hashtag is hash Um. We've got with us a fantastic lineup. We've got Louise Chun, who is the editor of Psychologies, a monthly magazine for intelligent, life curious women seeking to fulfill themselves and understand the fast changing world we live in. And this month it includes um, an 18 page dossier on um, improving your passion rate. How do you put that? I can't say sex life because that's far too low grade. I can do that. Uh, Louise has been a journalist for many, many years, almost as many as me, but obviously not quite as many. Uh, She was the women's editor of The Guardian. She has edited InStyle and Good Housekeeping, has been at Vogue, Elle, Evening Standard, everywhere. She's a Kiwi by birth, but is now a Brit, and welcome. James Geary, who is a journalist and author of uh, I is an Other, the Secret Life of Metaphor and How It Shapes the Way We See the World. That has the, uh, t- that's the world's uh, shortest title of any book this week. In fact, the book is out this week. Uh, and that it looks at met- metaphors and their influence on every aspect of our lives, from economics and advertising to politics and business. He's also the author of the New York Times best-selling The World in a Phrase, A Brief History of the Aphorism or Aphorism depending whether you're on this side of the Atlantic or the other one, and Geary's Guide to the World's Great Aphorists, both of which celebrate the witty and provocative art of the short philosophical sayings known as aphorisms or aphorisms. He's also the editor of Ode and former editor of the European edition of Time magazine. On my left, Amal Rajan, who is the deputy comment editor of the Independent and uh, one of the brightest young journalists in Britain today. He is also very proud that in May his book, Twirly Men: The Unlikely History of Cricket's Greatest Spin Doctors, will be published, and I know you'll all be uh, uh, lining up to sign up for that one.
2: Reasonably
1: proud. Yeah, very proud. He is a former editor of Varsity, the student newspaper. Studied English at Cambridge. Uh, gap year where he worked for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, becoming unofficially the youngest person ever to represent the UK at a political conference abroad. Two years as on Channel 5, The Right Stuff, where he held the microphone. Uh, joined The Independent as a news reporter, did a bit of sport, and is now on comment. He is also uh, a restaurant critic for The Independent on Sunday, and, uh, and a gen- an all-round general good egg. Anyway, here we are. Uh, we're going to start on my far right with James.
3: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, It probably won't surprise you to hear that I will be speaking about metaphor for the next five minutes. Um, And I think when most people hear the word metaphor, they think of John Keats or or something like that. Um, But what fascinates me about metaphor is its use in daily life. I think we're all um, familiar with how metaphors can um, move us emotionally. But I think it's, what's less familiar is that the word uh, emotion itself is, in fact, a metaphor. Its original, If you look at the etymology of the word, its original meaning is to move. And what do we say when we are emotionally touched by something? We say we are moved, and that's a metaphor. In fact, many of the most common metaphors uh, we use are based on our physical experience. Something as simple as, I see what you mean, is, in fact, a metaphor, because literally You see absolutely nothing (laughs) when you say that. It's a metaphor for understanding. And whenever we um, try to communicate or explain or convey something that has to do with our emotions or ideas or concepts or or anything that is abstract, we inevitably use metaphor. There is no other way for us to communicate the deepest, uh, the things that mean the most to us. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say, you can't have a conversation without using a metaphor, but I would say that you can't have an interesting conversation without, without using a metaphor. So, um, what, what my book is about is how metaphor works in daily life. And so, it has a lot of literature and, and poetry in it, but it's all about recognizing and responding to metaphors in our daily lives. For example, Um, If you go back to your office this morning, you open the newspaper, you will inevitably read an article about the economy. Pay careful attention to the way that price movements are described. Um, You'll notice that whenever stock market prices are rising, they are described using verbs that suggest living things, climbing, soaring, leaping. Whenever stock prices are falling, They're described using verbs that suggest dead things, dropping off a cliff, plummeting, falling. Now, I think a lot of people, many people, might not even say, recognize those verbs as metaphors, but they are metaphors. Prices increase and decrease. They don't leap, they don't climb, they don't soar, they don't plummet. All they do is go up or down. But when we describe them, we use metaphors of living or dead things. And these metaphors are not just flowery language or figurative language that we use to spice up uh, a newspaper article. They have profound psychological impacts on us. Studies have been done where people have been grouped into into separate groups in which one group read commentaries with metaphors like soar and climb and leap, and the other read commentaries that simply described price movements in much more uh, neutral terms decrease or increase. And the ones who read the metaphors had much higher expectations that those price trends would continue. Why? Because unconsciously, a metaphor triggers a concept in our, in our heads. When we read SOAR, I think nobody would think, ah, oh, that's a metaphor for, uh, for a living thing. But unconsciously, we, uh, those metaphors trigger concepts of living things in our, in our brains. As a result, because living things do climb and do leap and do soar and because living things have wills of their own and if they if they want to rise they can continue to rise through sheer willpower we have a greater expectation that those price trends will continue of course that has absolutely nothing to do (laughs) with economics and the way that price movements actually work if you look at the subprime mortgage crisis for example where house prices Every single day, absolutely everywhere, were described as leaping and soaring and climbing. People thought house prices could only go in one direction. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that metaphors caused (laughs) the subprime mortgage crisis, but I think we all recognize the power of metaphors in advertising, for example. Um, But in advertising, we're, we're, we're attuned to the metaphor because we know someone is trying to sell us something. What I'm suggesting is that much more pedestrian metaphors, pedestrian is another metaphor, by the way, its original meaning is is foot. Um, These sort of ordinary language is filled with with metaphor and um, it has a very pervasive but subtle influence on what we do and and how we think. Um, There are consultancies that are starting to spring up now that work with companies to develop metaphors for what they're doing and to develop new metaphors for what they're doing if they want to change what they're doing um, in terms of organizational strategy and things like that. And um, f- just to c- close with a, uh, an example from politics, when about a month ago, uh, when the shooting spree happened in, um, in Tucson, there was lots of discussion in the, in the US press about the, the violent rhetoric uh, used by the Tea Party or some members of the Republican Party and things like that. And again, I don't believe for a minute that Sarah Palin's use of a, of a target site in her map of congressional districts um, led to one crazed person's action on that day. But what I do believe, and what lots and lots of cognitive uh, research in the cognitive and the social sciences shows, is that the, the metaphors that we use frame the way we look at issues and the way we think about issues. And if you choose a violent metaphor, you construct a frame through which people will regard what you're talking about. And the more that that metaphor is repeated, the more pervasive it becomes and the more powerful it becomes. And um, as metaphors become repeated, they become cliches and we stop thinking about them and therein lies the danger and the opportunity for metaphors because a lot of the most ordinary language we use every day is metaphorical, but because we use it every day, we stop thinking about it. And if you, go, <laughs> if you leave this room after, after, the, after the talk, I guarantee you, you will see metaphors absolutely everywhere, not just in the financial commentary You'll see it everywhere in the newspaper. When you're talking to someone, if someone is trying to explain to you how they feel or why they had a bad night or what's going on in the relationship, it will be absolutely (coughs) suffused with metaphors. And for me, what's fascinating about metaphors is uh, if you pay attention to them, you suddenly realize their power and you suddenly um, empower yourself to determine how you respond to those metaphors. And when you find yourself in a sticky situation, whether it's professionally or personally, if you can change the the metaphorical frame through which you're thinking and interacting with people, you open up completely uh, new possibilities. So my thought for the day (laughs) is um, the mystery and and the power of metaphor is that by using metaphors, we, we can describe so precisely what something is by Describing what it is not. And that is the, the, the beauty and, and the power of metaphor. And thank you for your attention.
1: Well, I think we can uh, all see what you mean. Uh, and my spirit, frankly, has been soaring ever since you started. But uh, anyway, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions later. That is really, really so. Uh, at this time of the morning, that's great. Uh, but Louise won't be outdone. Louise, you have the floor.
4: Uh, unlike James, I'm not a, a single subject kind of person. I sort of wish I was. There were so many things I could have um, used for my thought for the day, because editing psychologies, it covers such a, a wide area. You know, Recently we've had features about the effect of internet, um, including on children, also on our minds, on sibling rivalry. Uh, women's obsession with their looks, the state of modern marriage, how to improve your memories in Buddhism. I could go on and on. But thinking about what my thought would be, for a number of reasons, I settled on ambition. Um, and I'll just take you through a bit of my thought process. Uh, I've just come back from visiting my parents in New Zealand. Um, and my mother unearthed an interview I gave to a magazine there. Um, when I came back and, and was seen as local girl made good because I was at that point Features Director at Vogue. And I was asked uh, what my ambition, future ambition would be and I'd said, oh, I'd you know, always rather thought I'd like to be a magazine editor, but really I decided I was probably more of a backroom girl. Um, since then I've edited four magazines and I'm pretty sure that I knew that that was what I really wanted to do I just didn't want to say that because I didn't want to seem, a lot of nodding, nodding women, <coughs> I didn't want to seem ambitious. Um, and I think that's rather typical. Also typical is something that brings in Julia Hobsbawm, the founder of EI. We met before the Vogue job when I was at The Guardian and uh, we had a, a few meetings and lunches and things like that. She was starting off as a PR. And uh, I got a call one day from um, a young man who I'd worked with at another job, who had suddenly shot into the stratosphere as an editor-at-large at at Vanity Fair in New York. And he asked me, of all the PRs I'd had dealings with um, as a journalist in London, who did I like and who did I want to have lunch with? Not who's the real killer, PR and who's really fabulous, who gets results, but who did I like? And I gave Julia a thumbs up because I did like her and we did have good lunch and, you know, I thought she was great. Um, But I thought what was really typical of both of us, women at that time, sort of end of the 80s, early 90s, was we didn't make a big triumphalist thing about when she got the gig of being the British PR for Vanity Fair. She sent me a great big bouquet of scented white lilies, sort of thing the Guardian hadn't often seen on anyone's desk at the time. Um, and I rang up and said, thanks for the flowers and you know, good luck. But we were very, very quiet about it, both of us pretty ambitious, I think other people might say. Um, another sort of input into making me decide on ambition was um, the missing speaker at this event, Sally Berko. Um, now, I'm not going to stand up for everything she's done or every. Um, uh, all, bit, all, all parts of her behaviour. I think some of it was perhaps ill advised. Um, but I do think that in the uh, monstering of her in the press, she was an example of an ambitious woman wanting to stand tall in the poppy field, and she got mowed down. Um, Even more criticism came down on the head of Amy Chua, the Chinese-American law professor, who wrote a book about bringing up her children. Now, frankly, I'm horrified uh, by by a lot of what she did, Um, but she was trying to be ambitious for her children. I mean, I think she could have laid off the threats to burn the soft toys. And um, no sleepovers ever, even in the holidays, Is just too much for me, but it was interesting the way that, that uh, she was seen. And finally I settled on ambition, because there's a great feature about it in the latest issue of Psychologies. <coughs> uh, and like everything that's in the magazine, it's a bit richer and deeper uh, and uh, more better researched than most women's uh, magazine features. Uh, so when I read that feature, which I'd commissioned from the features editor on the magazine, I found out that psychologically, ambition is not a trait, it's a byproduct of conscientiousness. It's neither negative nor positive, and yet women seem to have such a problem with it. Anita Chaudhary, who wrote the piece, says that it's not that women lack it, it's that they misdirect it. They find it very difficult uh, to compete with men. It goes against the grain for a lot of women, and when they do, if they're involved in business, uh, and they're asked about their value, they they constantly undervalue themselves and they don't have any certainty about their future uh, um, prospects in business. Uh, one executive coach that she spoke to quoted her client as saying, I just don't want to behave like the big I am. Well I think that um, a lot of women again would recognise that and some men, uh, might as well, but I think men would tend to think, no, that's exactly what I've got my executive coach for, to make me behave like the big I am. Away from men and work, um, there are, of course, Olympian levels of rivalry, competition and ambition among women, and they really show it to each other, (laughs) Um, That you know, around the school gate, in the gym, girls' nights out. Uh, They're very ambitious to be the top of the tree. They just don't like it when the men are in the tree as well Because that's when they want to hide it Uh, Men tend to focus on a single goal uh, In the work sphere such as earning more money or getting a promotion But women spread their ambition over their children their social life their husbands and their husband's prospects uh, their wardrobe their weight on and on uh, and, and I think this, this causes us all sorts of problems. Uh, there's an American psychiatrist called Anna Fells who wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review uh, titled, Do Women Lack Ambition? <coughs> and she said the problem wasn't that they lack it, but that they misunderstood it. They saw it as narcissism, and they didn't want to be seen in that way, to be seen as showing off manipulative and aggressive. Whereas she says that really, ambition is just getting the appropriate amount of recognition for your skills, which I have to say I thought, yeah, no, that's cool, that sounds great. I think most women would think, yeah, that's fine. But that comes without all the sort of metaphors that you're talking about that I think cause us the problems. She also noticed that many women choose to work in areas where they don't have to compete with men, Uh, so things like women's magazines, for example. You know, I've worked mostly with women, certainly on magazines, not on newspapers, but mostly with women. And I think any woman working in women's magazines will tell you that there are ambitious women out there and there is some awful sharp elbowed behavior, but that's, that's what can be held in there among the women and doesn't need to be seen by the men. My feeling uh, is that we spend a lot of time blaming men for not getting into, you know, why are there only 13% of women at board level uh, in British industry? And there are problems with male chauvinism and sexism, and there are problems with who's going to look after the children, maternity leave, etc. But I think women also ought to acknowledge that they have an ambivalence towards being seen as being ambitious. I'm not saying that we should have special pleading for being women, but I think we have to acknowledge that the answer is with us. It's not always men who are squashing us, it's us who don't want to be seen as ball-breaking, Uh, unfeminine, showing off, all the sort of things that we're very happy to see men doing. My final thought comes from that paragon of humility, Madonna, Mm -hmm. who said, I'm tough, ambitious, and I know exactly what I want. If that makes me a bitch, okay.
1: That was yet another fascinating thing. My ambition is to be as clever as she is. Um, that bit about uh, lunching with people, when I was the founding sports editor of The Independent, the rule was that no one would get a job if I didn't like to have lunch with them. And there was one guy who wasn't quite sure with who got the job as the racing editor, and he, was, he wasn't a lunching type, and he actually was the bastard, and he left after about three months. Anyway, there you go. Uh, I'd now like to turn to my left to Amol. The floor is yours.
5: Thanks very much, Charlie, Um, and thank you all for getting up so ridiculously early on a grim morning. Um, I know you all wanted to hear about spin bowling, but I'm actually going to talk about education, if that's all right. Basically, I want to just quickly um, put a thought in your head that 50 years of uh, education policy on universities and about 20 years of school policy has been completely bonkers, Um, and it's had a common quality which is that it's believed in systematically dismantling uh, academic education. And what I want to very briefly argue for is a return to a belief in proper academic education, mostly on the grounds that it will benefit the poor um, in a way that current policy doesn't. Um, university's been in headlines lots this week. We had a lead story on Tuesday's Times which said colleges told lower the bar for poor students. Earlier this month, the Russell Group of leading universities said um, people applying for university places should have uh, proper, crunchy, tough academic subjects rather than soft ones. UCAS last week predicted a record number of applications, 5.1% increase in demand. 750,000 students going for 450,000 places. Last month, KPMG announced it was setting up a four-year course where they'd pay for kids to go to university for four years, and then those kids would work for KPMG afterwards. Now, all of these um, stories are, um, of them being about higher education, Are premised on a single idea, which is that the more people that go to university, um, the better. And I think that idea is a complete uh, delusion, which is ruining thousands of lives each year. Quite the contrary, in fact, I think um, far too many people are going to university. And I think our whole approach to university has been changed uh, basically because of quite noble egalitarian impulses 50 years ago to accommodate ever growing numbers of people. But I actually think um, increasingly the wrong sort of people, which sounds like an appalling thing to say, um, have been going to university and actually it's causing something like a social catastrophe. And there's two cases, um, or two halves to the case. There's two halves to everything, it's a metaphor. Uh, okay. two, uh, there's two halves to the case uh, for sending fewer rather than more people to university. And I just want to very quickly outline both of them. Um, the first half is uh, practical. Um, I think though most middle class parents would be uh, loath to admit it, a phenomenal number of people who go to university basically spend three years uh, rolling spliffs, chasing freshers, wasting their time, about 10.2% drop out. So that's the people who actually have the guts to drop out. About 30% UCAS estimate uh, pass with lower than a two two. So about 30% go along to university and don't really engage with it academically. Um, if I mean, it's possible some of them will have to pay, very few of them will have to pay 9 grand a year, but some of them will pay up to 6,000 pounds a year. That's £18,000 over three years if you add that to the salary they might have gotten if they didn't go to university. You're talking about sixty or £70,000 for lots of people who go to university for three or four years. What do they get for that? Increasingly, not very much. Um, it's notoriously difficult to work out the relationship between the careers, the degrees people do and the careers they go on to do. But um, the Higher Education Statistics Agency reckons that even of those uh, few people who have a job, Six, within six months of uh, graduating from university, only, sorry, about 40% of those say that their degree was completely useless. And they reckon that about 90% of people don't actually use their degree courses in the careers they do. So from a practical point of view, it's a very, very big investment for possibly not very, very much. You might come out with a few STDs and a sort of taste for acid house. Um, but I don't think that's uh, the traditional idea of what is for. Um, the second half of the case against... University numbers soaring, um, in the case of them plunging, uh, to use two bad metaphors, is I think the stronger case, and it's a philosophical case, which is that um, most people who are now applying to university, will be this year, um, aren't really applying to university at all. Uh, What they're applying to is a kind of holding station for immature adults who don't really want to engage with the world of um, adult responsibility. Um, And you might say people in their um, 40s or 50s, um, 30s like Charlie uh, might say that it was ever thus, but actually not to this extent. Um, And I think to understand why, you have to make a brief excursion uh, into history. In post-war Britain, there was this great march of of this idea of meritocracy, and I think really ever since Clement Attlee's government in 1948, people have justified the march for meritocracy by saying, It could be measured by university numbers. Now, this was quite a noble ideal. The idea was class distinctions were collapsing, so we need to get the poor educated. I think in around um, when the Robbins report on higher education was published in 1963, you had something like 200,000 people going into higher education of any kind. By 1990, that was 600,000. By 1996, it was 1.6 million Um, And when the Deering report was published in 1997, which said uh, we need to to charge tuition fees, you were approaching nearly two million people who were either going to university or applying to it. That's a phenomenal rise. I think the only way in which that rise could have been accommodated is really by abandoning the historic idea of what a university is for. Universities traditionally, really not just in pre-war Britain, but even into the academy in Victorian times, was a, um, as Cardinal John Henry put it, a place of concourse where the students come from every quarter of every kind of knowledge. You cannot have the best of every kind everywhere. You must go to some great city or emporium for it. And Newman, writing in 1854, defended it in terms of that its inutility, so a value beyond economics. And the Deering Report and the whole introduction of tuition fees basically introduced an economic element to. Uh, going to university. So I think increasingly people account for university by what it's going to do for their future job earnings. And I think that's an incredibly bastardized conception of university. I think university should be about transmitting bodies of knowledge to, from one generation to another, about firing imaginations by getting people to engage with really interesting ideas. And if you think about the way in which universities have been to accommodate these, uh, this, these ever-growing numbers. We've got the kind of the famous pig enterprise management, Madonna studies, golf course management, all these sorts of things. Those aren't university degrees. And I think we've only been able to get to a stage where we're having the sort of arguments we're having over tuition fees, and Nick Clegg is having feces put through his front door by completely changing what university is for, or, or changing our understanding of university. And it's been done for, I think, you know, quite noble reasons. we believed in sort of egalitarianism. But the thing is, egalitarianism is opposed to discrimination of any kind. Um, And yet discrimination on the basis of ability was a historic foundation of universities. Universities originally were based on the idea that you oppose egalitarianism by discriminating on the basis of ability. But now they basically discriminate. They stop discriminating altogether so that everyone can go to university. So I think that's an abandonment of their basic ideals. I think one of the worst things about this, by the way, is that figures like this 50% statistic that new labor had about getting 50% of people into higher education have basically ended up as Richard Garner's our fantastic and peerless education editor the independent has long argued that you basically end up stigmatizing other very legitimate routes into employment there's nothing wrong with doing an apprenticeship if you're not massively academically able but go and do an apprenticeship don't do some crap degree and call it a degree and come out with 30 grand of debt I just want to deal very quickly with two uh, counter arguments that might be put One is that um, I'm ignoring uh, the plight of uh, poor people who won't be able to get into university right now and that it seems appalling that, you know, I should argue against 50 years of education policy which has basically been about getting ever more poor people into university. And I think that's complete nonsense, obviously. Um, I think actually it's against poor people that the biggest fraud is being perpetrated the idea that you know if they go and get a crap degree from a crap university frankly it would emancipate them from poverty actually it's the opposite that's true they'll end up mired in deeper debt and they'll end up less likely to get a job and they'll start the career or take the first step onto the career ladder three years down the line and the other thing might be that kind of you know if i the other argument might be that if i um, as a relatively recent sort of lucky oxbridge graduate who had access to world class uh, facilities Um, I'm now sort of trying to, you know, deny other people the chance to do the same thing as I did. And I've got some sympathy for that argument, I'm sure it seems incredibly um, insensitive coming from me. But I think that's changing the discussion from what I'm saying to sort of where I'm speaking from. And I think basically we need to return to the idea of university being not a right which you uh, pay for, so we don't think of, you know, students as customers demanding value for money, but instead a privilege. and I think if you believe in universities of privilege, you should be waging war against 50 years of education policy. And I think you need to approach the way in which we understand Nick Clegg and tuition fees and all this stuff with a far more foundational question. All this stuff about grammar schools or free schools doesn't get to grips with the fundamental question, which is, what is education for? And I think we've abandoned uh, that idea that education is actually about transmitting important bodies of knowledge. I think we've had a massive flight from academic subjects, and I think that's a really bad thing. I just The final thought I want to Which I've written down at length is that um, education is generally defended on the grounds that it benefits the many, not the few. But the curiosity of our current system is that universities will be of much greater use to the many only when they really learn the habit of garlanding the few. Thanks very much.
1: That was provocative stuff from Amol. I would uh, like to say that my son is studying vodka drinking at Manchester University. Uh, He obviously takes after his mother. Um, Now it's time for questions. The usual rules apply um, that you put your hand up and you identify who you are. While you're clearing your throats, I'd like to start off with one question to James. The use of metaphor by you, you mentioned economists, it isn't one of the reasons they do it is that the subject is very dry and very boring and they're attempting to inject some life into something that otherwise other people wouldn't read?
3: I don't think so. I think when, um, uh, certainly some, some do, and certainly when you read headlines, headlines are, are a feast of, of metaphors, um, almost any headline, whether it's about economics or, or, or politics or whatever, or sports, lots of sports metaphors. Almost every headline is a metaphor, but I think when journalists in general and financial journalists in particular use metaphors like Soar and Plummet and things like that, they are not aware that they're, that they're using metaphors. Um, if you look at uh, what is, what is <laughs> I think one of the most pervasive economic metaphors is that, is that money is a sort of liquid. You know, we talk about solvency, we talk about skimming things off the top, um, even the word broker, is originally, originally referred to someone who tapped a keg uh, in medieval times, which um, brokers continue to do to this day. Um, we talk about liquidity. Um, we talk about our, our stock options are underwater. and um, There's all these metaphors of fluid dynamics when we talk about um, money. And I don't think that's because uh, economists or financial journalists are trying to liven up a dry subject i don't think there's another metaphor a dry subject <laughs> um, it's quite quite an interesting subject um, what i think is going on and i think this is true this is how metaphor works is that in trying to explain in trying to explain something new or something that's abstract like money is, is very very abstract especially today we look for something that everybody is familiar with to explain it because it's so immaterial that otherwise we can't grasp it, which is another metaphor. Sorry, I'll stop saying that now. Um, So water is a good metaphor for the way that money works. So, and and metaphor is much more, (laughs) it's a way of thought long before it's a way with words. So when we're we're trying to explain something and which journalists are trying to do every day, we look for the, the thing that everybody is already familiar with to explain this new thing. And so water seems to be a good, um, uh, way to describe money because money kind of flows around and it goes into one pot and then it comes into another pot, and very often it completely evaporates and we don 't we aren 't quite sure why, so I think people instinctively and and immediately find the thing that 's in the natural world or that 's common to lots of people 's experience, and they use that to describe this new thing and the more successful, the more accurate they, the accurate, accurately they can do that, the more successful the metaphor becomes and then it becomes popular and suddenly we all start talking about it and we don't even think it's a metaphor anymore.
6: Um, so, something like water you instantly see, whereas money, um, I mean it is obviously visual but you see the green notes, You don't, the, the, the water and, and most metaphors give you a visual dimension as well and that's probably why they're so effective.
3: You're absolutely right. The, in fact, I see what you mean. One of the metaphors that is in present in absolutely every culture and every language all around the world since the beginning of time is the metaphor of understanding as vision. I see what you mean. And if you think about them, the metaphors we use all the time, they are visual, because most of our information about the world comes through our sense of vision. That's how we understand most things. And metaphor evolved from, you know, if you talk about the, uh, how metaphor works in the brain, it evolved from the same kind of brain circuitry that we use to navigate the physical world has been sort of co-opted to navigate the emotional and psychological world through metaphor. And that's why these metaphors are always so physical. I, I just want to
1: Can we identify
7: yourself, please, Paul? I... Please call her, Um, Lucy Beresford. I'm a novelist and uh, writer, Um, but I'm also a psychotherapist. And there was some research recently about the way um, that our personal use of language, to pick up on your phrase, frames our reference to the world. And they were looking at uh, clinical studies of patients with cancer. And they studied the language that these patients used about themselves, about their vision for recovery. Patients who spoke metaphorically of, um, I feel like death, um, you know, I'm feeling so low, all those sorts of things, they actually had lower outcome scores than patients who had a much more positive outlook on life, which was then transmitted through their language, so very similar ideas.
3: That's, that's absolutely true, and the, there's an entire chapter on metaphor and psychology in, in the book, and there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a brand of therapy called clean language, which works with metaphors, And I did one of these sessions uh, as part of the research for the book. And essentially, you go in with an issue or a subject that you wish to discuss. And the therapist says, and what is it like? (laughs) And you have to come up with a metaphor. Well, it's like, and I used...
7: That's a simile.
3: Ah, thank you very much. That is a simile. But a simile, a simile is just a metaphor with the scaffolding still up. So, just to respond to that point, when I say metaphor, I mean metaphorical thinking. So, I mean similes, I mean analogies, I mean scientific thought experiments, the way the mind works by association. Metaphor is not just, you know, my love is like a red, red rose, because that's a simile, obviously, but Juliet is the sun, that's a metaphor, but so is the way we think. It's metaphorical thinking that I'm, that I'm talking about.
8: Right, thank you. Um, my name is Paul Hensby. I've just launched a website called mylastsong.com, which I recommend everybody visit. Um, and I'm now back in the freelance world as a consultant um, working for the uh, big society network. Um, James, I've heard what you've said, but my question isn't to you. Um, the first one is to Louise. Um, isn't it a case that the, um, the, the woman's um, slight barrier to being ambitious is um, almost um, driven by sort of evolutionary um, pressures. You know, for thousands and thousands of years, it was probably not a good thing for women to be too ambitious, particularly in a, a, a men's sphere, simply because those sort of successful groupings and families were ones where the women's role, and of course I'm not suggesting that we go back to this, is one where they weren't really, it wasn't a good thing as far as the bringing up of the children was concerned, to try to compete, with the male on things that the males were better doing. Um, Shall I do the second question then? Um, The second question is to Amol, which is that I I totally agree with you that I think that the reduction in academic standards at university is an appalling thing. But one of the benefits surely of going to university is for people to meet with people from other backgrounds And it's not just what they're learning from going to the lectures and tutorials. It's actually understanding how other people think about things and behave, and how they can then sort of um, model themselves or learn lessons. I I, I used to recruit people from my team. And it was quite evident to me sometimes, and and you're an exception, that the extraordinarily bright people that have come out of Oxbridge just don't have those kind of soft skills or or life experience, even at that stage, which (laughs) <laughs> which, which some of the people who I've interviewed who've gone to sort of red brick universities and haven't got quite such good degrees and such wonderfully academic things fitted into the team far better and, you know, were better members of my staff.
1: Louise?
4: Um, well, you know, the thing is that we now do things that cave men and women couldn't do. You know, we fly. We, you know, uh, women don't have to have babies anymore. That, that's made a big difference, yes. I think so you know you 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 i would say yes that within a lot of women there is a sense of of wanting to nurture things you see it in small girls you know i'm a i'm a kind of you know 70s feminist originally and i've had three children and the first two i was very much trying to even it out between a boy and a girl and and you know, my son used to bite his toast into a gun because <laughs> I wouldn't buy him one. <laughs> you know, yeah. and and uh, now I'm much more kind of you know whatever. In the house. <laughs> if you want to be a princess, be a princess. You know, I think it'll all it'll all. Work its way through anyway, uh, but I think um, it, it's it's possibly one of the things that women struggle with, and I think they do struggle with competing directly with men because they also want to attract men. Yeah. You know, it's part of the whole rich tapestry of life. Okay, we'll just have Emil uh, giving you
5: your answer. Very quick. I mean, very flattered uh, by that, but. I mean, I agree that one of the wonderful things about university is making lifelong friendships as well. You know, you get to meet people, you get to live with them, which is something you don't necessarily do. I'm just not sure that f- for inc- of the kind of percentage or proportion of people that have started going to university that maybe wouldn't have done in the 60s and 70s, I'm not sure that they get enough out of that to justify what they're doing by going for three or four years. I know it seems appalling coming from someone who had a great time at university, but. I, in terms of that analysis or sort of working out the costs and benefits of it I sort of think that that wonderful experience of being engaged with people's minds and learning pe- you know, learning to grow up with people is something that you can do aside from university as well. I actually think it's an appalling thing to say given I've just banged on about academic education I think it's wonderful I did go travelling for a bit you know I think that way you can grow up for three years you can you know go from New Zealand to Britain and find that you want to settle in a lot of in career here so I'm not well, I agree with you, I'm not sure that that justifies it in some particular cases, though in other cases I'm sure it does. Okay, down the far end.
9: My name's Patrick Hayes from the Institute of Ideas. Uh, got two questions. First one's for James, because James, I've been very struck by what you said, and I've noticed use of metaphors a lot. For example, with the Egyptian crisis recently, you've heard Egypt being described as, uh, by John Simpson on the Today program the other day as being a giant domino, which is going to come down and have a domino effect uh, throughout the Middle East. Um, it's been described as a contagion which started in Tunisia. There's all these kind of descriptions. And I've been actually quite angered by that in some ways because I think it denies the agency of, well, for example, the Egyptian people to take matters into their own hands. It suggests these kind of naturalistic metaphors, which actually deprives people of control over their kind of circumstance. And you got that with the economic crisis as well. You we were going into the storm, as the um, economists would endlessly kind of put it, which suggests, again, uh, the economy is like the weather. It's something that we don't have control over. So, uh, I, but I think a lot of these are actually quite unconscious and may reveal underlying attitudes. I guess one of my main concerns is the fact that now there's more analysis on metaphors, people are becoming more aware of them, actually it can become more insidious. It's a bit like a nudge kind of effect, um, where people are now saying, right, well, because this is unconscious and has quite a potent effect, what we need to do is analyse it and find ways of manipulating people's behaviour or seeing things in this kind of unconscious level, rather than traditionally what metaphors were about, which is telling, getting closer to the truth, actually really trying to explain something, and get someone to understand something better. So I'm worried about that shift about using metaphors to manipulate people rather than express the truth, and I wonder if to share that. Um, secondly with Amol I, Amol, I couldn't agree more with you. I think there isn't a right to be a scholar and, uh, and as a journalist who's been covering the student protests a lot recently, it's re- it really struck me that when you go out and ask students why they're protesting, No one uh, that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to hundreds of students, has actually said it's because I want an education for its own sake, it's because I want to study philosophy or psychology. It's always because, you know, for every pound spent on education, you get £2.35 back to contribute to the economy, or it's going to benefit my career in one way or another, or, uh, or, you know, it's really important to make sure that you have social mobility. So you always have these instrumental justifications of higher education, rather than the traditional sense of you go there to push back the boundaries of knowledge and engage in education for its own sake. I guess my question for you is, do you hold out any hope for the idea of universities being able to kind of have a beacon for uh, knowledge for its own sake, to kind of rekindle academic knowledge? Or do you think this is, you know, the damage has been done now and
3: there's
1: no going back? Uh, Metaphor is true,
3: James. Um, I think you make excellent points. Um, First of all, I would say that metaphors are true. Um, uh, They're true often on a literal level. So if you take a, take a metaphor like no man is an island, that is a literal statement of truth. And it also is a metaphorical statement of, of truth. So when John Simpson describes, uses the term domino, then it's true for him. But what's also true is that these sort of, um, often in this kind of situation, someone will use a, an historical analogy. So, and for example, Obama did this recently in his State of the Union speech. He talked about this is our Sputnik moment and sorry but analogies are metaphor- examples of metaphorical thinking too and these also trigger associations so my experience of the sputnik moment is totally the wrong metaphor to use um, because it harkens back to an era of confronta- confrontation and competition and in the current era i think what we need is collaboration um sputnik was all about you know back in the the Cold War superpower competition head to head we have to it's a it's a zero sum game today we need Russia and China to grow at, you know f- for us to grow for the for the United States and the United Kingdom and, and Europe to grow we can't be sort of trying to beat China we need China to succeed too so for me the Sputnik is a totally wrong metaphor to use because it brings up the wrong historical uh, connotations um, and You're absolutely right that these do influence the way people perceive situations. I'm not as concerned about it being sort of insidious because people have always used metaphor to persuade and to influence people. What's happening now is sort of uh, threatening in one sense because uh, neuroscience is also being used to map out the area of the brain that is active when certain uh, advertisements are shown or certain... The whole thing about advertisements and political speeches is that they try to trigger certain feelings and we can now map exactly where those feelings are in the brain. And um, some of these consultancies that I mentioned earlier are actually working with metaphors and using brain scans to see which metaphors activate which brain areas that are related to people's desire to buy things. So yes, that's insidious, but if we're aware of it, then like I said earlier, we empower ourselves if you're aware that a metaphor is being used you can delight in it and take pleasure in it and decide yourself to what extent you're going to be influenced by
5: hey, label trick yeah. um, i'm one of uh, last optimists like you are but i have to say i've, I've given up hope um, I, just, I the thing that makes me really really worried about the future of universe is actually the, the attitude that we have to schools and of all the things that i massively hold against um, Uh, New Labour, not that particularly party political, but of all the things, um, it's the fact that they collapse the distinction between schooling and skilling, which I think is the most disgusting thing that's happened in our country in the last 20 years. And the basic impulse of that is the idea that poor kids should do vocational education. Studies by the LSC show that poor kids are six or seven times more likely to do vocational subjects, Um, you know, we have endless uh, reports from Civitas and the like saying that academy students, which are mostly poor students, are more likely to be vocational subjects. And I think actually the flight from a proper academic education has started to um, infiltrate our schools. It's not some sort of conspiracy it has been done in the open, but there's no great resistance to it. And just very briefly, I work for, um, I suppose, four or five uh, big society, institutions, charities, three of them are about helping educate the poor endlessly come across, you know, 14-year-old Billy, whose kids are, who's at um, school full of drugs and weapons, and he's told to do woodwork at the age of 14. He does it for about a year and a half, finds it's completely useless, and he can't do anything with woodwork. Better to have tried and failed at physics and chemistry and gotten a D or E in that than to have tried and failed at woodwork, which is actually not very much use unless you want to work with wood. So I think, I think the, the case for being pessimistic is unfortunately massively strengthened because of the tyranny of vocational education, which has infiltrated uh, state schools um, and is, I think, spreading upwards rather than just downwards.
1: Okay. One here, then here, and then back there.
5: Thank you. Um,
10: Olly Barrett from the co-sponsorship agency. Very stimulated by Amal, your words on universities. I say that, sadly, as a double university dropout. Uh, six of the most enjoyable months of my life were at uh, Walt Disney World in Florida. I went to the Disney University as well, and so I quite literally have a Mickey Mouse degree. Uh, It was rather depressing, uh, for my mother at least. Now, um, I I do agree with you, university needs redesigning, it's far too long, it's far too expensive, it's a lot of stuff and nonsense. I don't agree that we should spend that time passing on the knowledge. I take the view that that could often be done on one's own, uh, plugged into your iPod and so on and so forth. I do think it could be better used to prepare for the world and to prepare you to change the world. And that reminds me of school, because that's what I think school should do, Especially and that reminds me of uh, what our other two speakers Louise and um, James were saying because I've been into dozens and dozens of schools with the scheme I started and the two things I notice are firstly there doesn't seem to be very good goal setting Actually sitting down and writing down what you want to achieve and I think that's a big thing which would obviously lead uh, to slightly different ambitions in my view the other thing is If the children I'm meeting are lucky they've learned to read and write a lot of them haven't really learned to speak And I don't mean the accent they speak in, I genuinely mean their ability to stand up and express themselves. And so my question, I suppose, to all of you is, uh, what do you think we should start teaching in schools and what do you think we should stop teaching?
4: Well, I think that's interesting about the public speaking. I went uh, the other day, I live in um, Brent, and I went to a a Brent debating thing because my 10-year-old daughter was taking part in it. And... uh, uh, she goes to the local primary school, which is considered quite good. And there was, a, they were debating another local uh, local primary school that all the other middle class parents I was there with going, I've never heard of this school. What is the school? And the other school wiped the floor with, uh, with uh, you know, with my, with my daughter's team because they were just so on it. And they had a teacher who taught them to speak, to get up, and you know they were debating whether free stuff is good. <laughs> Like you know, <laughs> CDs for given away with newspapers and stuff like this, and it was it was fantastic to see, and it really engaged the kids. But these were the kids who'd spe- who were specially taken out of the class, and you know, in a little kind of debating team. It wasn't the the sort of normal thing of what they were doing, and I have to say that that watching her education as opposed to her older siblings, it's been pretty depressing because it's much more. Uh, lowest common denominator and everything has to be added on at home. Everything about encouraging kind of outside reading or extra maths, anything like that at all, you're just not not getting on the state system that I can see. James, would the metaphor as a subject or?
3: Um, If I could not mention metaphor for for a minute, (laughs) 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 um, that's a really interesting point, but the point that I would make, in order to speak you need to know how to think. And so I would agree very much with the points that you were making is that education is not about just getting a job. It's about learning how to think. And the phrase that you use a value beyond economics, education has a value beyond economics. And I think it's crucial that university at every level, we're taught to think. And to do that, you do need to be free of sort of, um, uh, sort of utilitarian concerns for, I mean, I think people should all go to university because it's the period in your life when you have no responsibilities, you're enjoying yourself, you're learning, it's exciting. It, that never happens again. And if you were never to have that, if I never had that, I would be rather upset. And I also have uh, young children and uh, in their teens and, and, and younger. And, it fills me with hope and, and, and pride and, and um, excitement when we sit around the dinner table talking about, does God exist or not? And dad, do you believe in God? And uh, those kind of conversations, those kind of thoughts, that kind of space, um, that's what is nurtured at, at university or should be nurtured at university. And, and even in the, in the, you know, the lower tiers of, of education. And it's that education, learning how to think and, and to think critically and not just accept what you're, what you're taught or to learn by rote, then when you get into a, you know, a, a debating competition or, or whatever it is, you can speak because you have ideas and those ideas are your own. So independent critical thinking, I think, is, is what university should be all about.
7: I'm Kate Kinnemont and um, I run an organisation called Women in Film and Television. So we are the, the voice of the women in the creative media. I have never been up so early for years (laughs) as this morning and I have to say I feel really excited by the range of speakers here and it's quite frustrating because you want to speak to every one of them. Um, I think, Amol, I really do feel exactly the way you do about education and that's partly because I um, am part of the media, I've worked in the BBC for years. And what's been happening is I think when Tony Blair and New Labour decided that Quite rightly, it would be great if half the country could go to university. They, they weren't really prepared for it in schools, and so kids were all encouraged that to be somebody you had to go to university, but what would they do? Well I'll tell you what they do, they do media studies. 32,000 people graduate in media studies every year, which is more than the sum total of jobs in the media. We get lots of letters and emails from people who can't spell, they wouldn't know a metaphor if they fell over it, because their level of literacy is so poor, but you don't need to be literate, you just need to… somebody said to me the other day, you no longer read Romeo and Juliet, you read little bits of it, You know. and what is that about? That is to try to get everybody through university. What I think is tragic, as a working class person from glasgow who went and has done two degrees in english which is why i love the metaphor as much as you do um is that the whole problem is that's all these sort of kids who are going to do media studies i go out and speak to postgraduate courses most of them can't speak as you were saying you know because they don't read because they don't have discussions about you know is there a god what's she like um that kind of thing because nobody has actually taught them to think or to speak. I mean, metaphor is something that you use in increasingly sophisticated discussion. You couldn't have discussions about any academic subject without using metaphor, because without metaphor, we would simply have like commands or requests, wouldn't we? And I just think that the whole problem has become worse, because for ordinary working class people like I would have been, how do you, how would I get through a comprehensive school? You know, brightness isn't enough. Would I really want to be in debt for best part of 40,000 quid? Would you
1: employ someone if they had a media studies degree or would, you, would it be anything that you would
4: look for? It wouldn't be something I'd look for. Um No, that's true, but I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, at Psychologies, we have, you know, we have some Oxbridge uh, and we have some definitely not. And I think that, in my experience, um, it's good to... You know, I like to mix it up. In fact, they're not even all graduates, I don't think. Am I right, Perry? I have certain... Yeah, uh, I mean, personally, I think it can be overstated. And there are lots of places I've worked, you know, like The Guardian say, where there's a lot of people who've been to the same universities. Certainly when I was there, there was a very strong sense that people like me coming from New Zealand, there were quite a lot of people from South Africa, Zimbabwe, Australia, etc. Um, And, you know, we were kind of allowed in and it didn't really, you know, it wasn't such a big deal, our lack of a first-class education. So I remember Alan Rusbridger asking me if I had a first-class education. I said, I come from New Zealand, it's, you know, we're we're all the same. He said, no, one university must be better. And I said, I don't think so. (laughs) Not
1: that Alan is elitist in any way whatsoever.
4: Uh, But, but, you know, I I um, I think one of my children, went to Oxford, and it's been interesting to me because obviously that's a terrific thing to be able to say, but I think in some ways um, it, it has also been spoon-fed to, to her and she acts more like she's come out of a very expensive boarding school than this incredible temple of learning. So I, uh, yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> but we're, you know, we love each other, but it, she know, she knows that I have, reservations about it. I think you've got to live and I think actually the biggest thing for both of my older children was getting a job. I think get it working and providing for yourself and using a washing machine and and making your own bed those kind of things to me they are they are really the important
7: things that mature you that we were sort of rubbishing Oxbridge. My daughter went to Oxford, and she works for the Economist Intelligence Unit. She's over there just now doing stuff about Egypt. And she can use a washing machine, too. So it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not going to be one thing or the other. Yeah. It sounds like who can use a washing
11: machine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm James Kidner. I run an educational charity called Coexist, which is all about trying to help people understand the role of faith and religion in the modern world. And I'm interested, and and I can't remember a more stimulating start to a day this year. I think it's been absolutely fascinating and a huge advertisement for this splendid club we should all join. Um, I'm interested in the interface between metaphor and imagery and the way in which, you know, we are now spoon-fed a diet of images that even our grandparents never had access to. Uh, they had access to language, and we've had access to language you know, since civilization sort of first got up off its hind legs. But we are new to imagery, and I want to, to sort of in a sense, explore the way in which a steady stream of images that are of a particular kind uh, can infuse the same problems within our psychology as a steady stream of metaphor can. Um, In the world in which I work, trying to help people understand religion, there's a terrible dichotomy all around the world where most people in most parts of the world religion is the most precious thing to them and yet for all of them the media images of religion around the world are entirely negative and dangerous and difficult and this applies in a sense to Amal's excellent presentation on education. He's got I think a a fantastic thesis here but he needs to find imagery and metaphor that can couch it in a positive term. I just pick up a couple of points from from the questions, the chap in the front row with his splendid new website, which clearly we all ought to tune into. Um, uh, talking about the role of, ed- uh, of universities in introducing us to people from other walks of life, they do that, but they don't introduce you to what Amol, with his b- engaging political incorrectness, would call thick people, any more than, than than Louise's excellent magazine will show you images of ugly people. There is the, <laughs> There are dichotomies in here that we live with, and I'm interested to know whether we can break out of this, this spoon feeding of imagery that is negative and find a sort of positive way to frame this morning's discussion, which for me has been hugely inspiring.
1: Well, there's a lot there. Uh, uh,
5: you're a politically incorrect person. Can I just asking James a question Sir? very, very quickly. I will try and engage that, because it's very interesting. And it has made me feel rather embarrassed. Um, just the, there's a question of so when does when exactly does metaphor become cliché? Is what well? I was slightly interested in. So um, Orwell uh, said, as essay on Dickens all art is propaganda. I sort of think a clever way of thinking about it is all art is metaphor, and the whole point of art is it's kind of you know the distance between reality and metaphor, and that's the sort of art it is, is about how it negotiates that distance. So is metaphor just a byword for art? The other thing is, um, you really got to read on Saturday in The Independent, there's a fantastic column which Charlie will remember, called Errors and Emissions by a chap called Guy Colleen, who's our letters editor. It's the best column in Fleet Street. One of his favourite bugbears is the phrase meteoric rise, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> meteors don't rise, they fall. Um, and the usage is doubly bad because the whole point about meteors and their lives is that they have a very ble- brief um, you know, flash of brilliance and then descend into nothingness which is usually the opposite of what people mean by meteoric rise um, but the question is when does that bad metaphor uh, start being a cliche is it its kind of intrinsic wrongness in terms of it, what it's trying to describe or is it is it the clichéd overuse of it? Can i try to work out why that's a particularly bad metaphor.
3: Well, I think Orwell is a perfect person to cite, because one of his yeah, in his, yeah. his great um, essay, Why I Write, he talks about political language and he talks about metaphor. And what he decries is a sort of laziness among journalists, among writers in general, about using clichés, because it, it sort of ties in with the discussion about education. Cliches uh, like the iron fist, you know, if you think about that, when it was first used, it was a brilliant image. But cliches are victims of their own success. Something becomes a cliche when it's a really, really um, good way to describe something. And it doesn't mean it's factually true. Like meteoric rise is completely ridiculous. But so is, you know, no one wants to talk about the elephant in the room. But the fact that we You know, there is no elephant in the room, but we use it because it's a perfect way to describe a taboo subject that no one wants to talk about. And it becomes a cliché because everyone recognizes it's a perfect way to describe a taboo subject. What Orwell, the point he was making, is that if journalists do that, and if readers do that, just relying on the clichés, the dustbin of history and iron fist and things like that, we absolve ourselves of thinking for ourselves. So what he was uh, advocating was make new metaphors. You know, that, that is a quality of good writing, and that is also a quality of good thinking. And to tie it back to the question about visual uh, imagery, again, uh, repeat my point, metaphors are not just in language. They're, they're, there's body language that can be metaphoric, like if I'm sitting like this, or, you know, this is a metaphor, uh, visual imagery is also metaphoric. Um, and, so, and you see, and again, this is, these are also clichés, so if you look around, you see how many products you can think of that have been advertised as a pearl, you know, um, like there's cars that have been advertised that way, chocolate, beer, because a pearl is sort of this clichéd image, uh, but it, it connotes value. It, it's, a, it's a universal metaphor for value, something, something precious. and. But even, uh, like, I, like I tried to point out with the, 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 the economic metaphors, even things that are clichés, especially visual clichés, because we, we, we get most of our information visually, are incredibly powerful. So the imagery, the religious, whether it's religious or advertising imagery, um, the light bulb that goes on on top of someone's head uh, signifying a good idea, um, uh, hearts, clocks... All these things you see that are deployed in advertisements are also working on you uh, unconsciously. And the same is true for uh, you know, the political uh, imagery, uh, religious imagery, it's all working on you subtly. Even if you, you, you look at it and think, you know, that's cliche, that's, that's a thousand years old. Well, it's a cliche because it's worked for, for thousands of
12: years and it's still working.
1: Got a few more for the floor. Tom
12: i very interested in what you were saying and I'm also interested that I sense there's a lot of sympathy in the room for some of the points that you were making. Clearly uh, an awful lot of people coming through the school system are going to be making the sorts of calculations you were talking about as to whether the financial gamble of going to university is going to be worth it um, and particularly for the subjects that are less revered and the institutions that are less revered so my question is um, if you look at the university league tables, if you look at the bottom half of that league table, um, what percentage of those institutions do you think will still be in existence uh, in any meaningful way in five years' time? And uh, presumably you're saying that's a good thing. Uh,
5: what, so what percentage of the bottom half of the league tables will still be in existence in a meaningful way, where if I'm arguing that they're kind of slightly meaningless institutions and uh, I suppose they'll keep on existing. I don't, I think they'll keep on existing because I don't think, I mean, I'm not here as some great heretic, but I don't think, I think the impulse of 50 years of educational policy is very much in the kind of expansionist mode and expansionist tendency. And I can't see any great likelihood, maybe tuition fees will in, uh, influence it, but I can't see any great likelihood that those universities will disappear. But do you think tuition fees will massively put off loads and loads of students? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so do I. But I'm not sure that those would be students at the very, very bottom. And in fact, one of the things that Nick Clegg was saying last week, sorry, this week, was that he actually thinks that those universities, because they'll have the most, I mean, I don't know if this is true, and I think the Jewish fees rise is appalling, by the way. But his view was that those people at the bottom would not stop going to those universities. It would actually be people in the middle who stopped going to red brick universities. I don't know if that's true or not. I simply don't know.
2: I'm Elizabeth Block, a journalist and um Occasional teacher of writing, so i 'm glad James that you said that um, metaphors are the basis of good writing. If you could teach everyone to use you know strong verbs like soar, I also think you 're a little imperialistic about metaphors you 're claiming practically everything that is not the most literal language, but it 's terribly interesting in terms of education. The last point shouldn't we bring the economy in here if the economy were soaring rather like the mortgage market many more um you would have more ambition i mean if i were a kid from a a deprived family and were um could see myself becoming a lawyer high earner but there's the government is strangling the universities, cutting off the money. Everyone knows that you know, there are fewer, the ratio of students, teachers, lecturers is poor. So I think we just have the worst mixture here. Maybe it's the same in the States, but I think it's somewhat better because it's a larger, more complicated system. So you have, you have this fake egalitarianism
6: I um, left print journalism uh, being an editor about 20 years ago and sailed off into the digital sphere. I've basically been doing digital content for nearly 20 years now. And I'd really like to pick up on something um, you talked about with ambition. I find in the place where I work now, which is um, a consultancy agency, we're working with clients all the time to try and help big organizations move forward and create new digital businesses, I find collaboration everywhere. So you cannot, as an individual now, do all of the complex things that you need to do in order to work in digital marketing, in order to work in digital content. It's very, very rare to find somebody who's got the absolute focus to be doing the analytics and the maths on one end. Ought to be doing the very focused coding and to have the ideas. So you have to work in teams. You have to be codependent. You have to be interdisciplinary. And this is now comes to the edu- the university thing. I think we, I mean, I'd, I'd say Ken Robinson. I'd say Ken Robinson, 1999, the Labour government actually did do an amazing thing with the Creative Partnerships program, which was to say actually what we need is mindsets for imagination, curiosity, motivation, lifelong learning. And I, now, when I try and bring new graduates in, all I'm looking for is a basic skill set, a fearlessness about trying to learn new programs, learn visualization programs. They just have to be able to think and problem solve. So okay.
0: Hamilton, and I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm actually really depressed. I'm a Thatcher's child. I went to school in the '80s. Um, in the north of England. it was an absolutely average comprehensive school. Um, I went to university to study law, um, vocational subject, very useful financially. Um, I was appalled when I got to university. It's the first time I was actually politically activated um, because I don't know what the statistics are, but I think it's something, I'm going to say it's 10% of people go to private schools, you go to university, and I was 90% surrounded by privately educated students, um, which made me feel A, insecure, and B, question my attitudes that had been instilled in me by being a Thatcher child. She grew up um, the daughter of a greengrocer. She made a big deal about that. I felt we were all invincible. I thought women could do anything they wanted to. I turned around to my mother once and said, she tried to stop me doing my A-levels and said, why don't you just do a secretarial certificate? You could become a PA. I said, I don't want to be the secretary, Mum. I want to be the boss. Uh, Because Thatcher made me feel anything could happen. It presses me now because I look back and I think I went to university and the people I was surrounded by at school who were incredibly bright, are still in Chesterfield, doing really badly paid jobs. They had the brilliance to go on and do something different, but they didn't know how to. They, didn't in, they weren't encouraged to. And I look back now, and I think their children um, are looking at going to university about now. And they can't afford, they can't conceive how you could pay 9,000 pounds a year. Because if their parental income, what they're used to bringing in is about 20,000 pounds a year. If you earn £150,000 a year, £250,000 a year, £500,000 a year as an overpaid lawyer, then £10,000 to your children is a drop in the ocean, it's nothing, and they're comfortable with it. So I do think we are looking at a crisis if they carry on with this policy. I know we have to address things about, you know, going to do a woodwork degree in question, but where do you draw the line? And I think somebody said about the children going to the the protests were saying, you know, it's two pounds for one pound or whatever. They're 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. They've got that idea from somewhere. So we're all to blame for making education all about the bottom line and not about the original ideas, as you mentioned, um, about education for education's sake. But I do question, I just have to question, where are these missing um, poor children? and who is going to encourage them in the future to get out there and make something of themselves.
1: Okay, we well, have the man at the back there. Hi, I'm Matthew, I'm a, currently a journalism student in one of, like, one of the bottom half of the league table universities. Uh, so it's been quite interesting this morning. Um, my question is to Amal. Um I do agree that there are a lot of students going to university and it is a problem, but I think one of the biggest problems is the requirements set by the employers. Like, I went to university because, the jobs that I wanted, you needed a degree to get them um, i'm a, I work in a supermarket as well. If I wanted to be a manager of my department, I would need a degree. If I want to go into journalism, I need a degree so what do you th- rather than targeting the universities and the and the students going to university, do you not think that the employers should f- at first um, decrease the requirements and uh, not so fo- be so focused on a degree
3: i uh I studied poetry and philosophy um, at university. And um, when I think back now, I think how stupid that was (laughs) from one point of view, because it never, I was fortunate, I guess, i never crossed my mind. I never kind of thought about getting a job at that age. I just, and I I was the first person in my family to go to university. And I always assumed that um, I would get a job like my other members of my family, which was manual labor, mostly or retail or something like that. But my interest was in philosophy and, and, and literature. So my motivation for going to university was to experience that. And it turns out that I got a degree, but again, that wasn't why I did it. It turns out that that, and this is kind of the same point I made earlier, that education served me very, very well in journalism. I've never studied journalism. <coughs> I've never taken a single journalism course. I've never taken a, a writing course or anything like that. But what has served me really well as a journalist is the critical thinking um, that I learned from philosophy and literature. Um, so I would agree with you that um, you know journalism job, s- this degree, you ha- you know those two things have to go- have to go together. I think that's totally misguided. I think there's a huge value to a very sort of broad Education that encourages critical thinking and independent thinking and engages with um, philosophical subjects. Um, you know, everything is not about making money. And I think you know your point about collaboration and things like things like that. In the future, being able to actually do something with your hands is going to be still going to be very very valuable. But having a broad view, because there is so much going on having a broad view and being able to assimilate information and sort through it, that's crucial. So, uh,
4: okay, you know. Well,
3: that's fine. I, I would say that I never took a journalism degree. Most people said they could tell, uh, but.
4: <laughs> no, please. I mean, again, like these two, I didn't do a journalism degree. I think I just got in before that kind of thing started. And I, But I would say that uh, when I, I, I'm not alone in thinking this, and, and I'm talking generally in, in kind of a consumer magazine journalism, where it's not all about uh, specific skills, but it's about ideas and innovation actually, trying to come up with something a bit different. So some of the people, certainly some of the most inspirational people that I've worked with have been mavericks who have not had traditional entrances to journalism. And I think uh, I think if you if you you know a decent letter you know a joke a reference to something that they is going to turn them on personally that always works with me but and how, it's not what, about
1: how, how, how has it happened though that all these media studies are there and the 35,000 media students I, don't I mean, know.
4: I've got no idea I don't really I don't, I, I don't really know what they're doing and I, and I'm I mean I have been spoken at journalism in the kind of lower level college, things, and, and I have looked around and said to the lecturer who was a friend, you know, they're never going to get jobs, and she goes... Well, hang
8: on, it's because it interests
4: them. It's I know, I know, bad. but I think they were there to, I think they were there to get jobs. The, 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 it wasn't really me, it was a journalism course, and I, the, the, it just, it's so tough to to get any kind of job at the moment, and I think, you know, you've got to sh- you've just got to show bright ideas and spark and, you know, it's not all about yep. learning.
5: No. I mean, I don't, Matthew, I don't want you to feel like you're not doing something which is useful because you can absolutely put it to use. In fact, there's other people, young reporters at The Independent, who wouldn't have got those degrees unless they could account for the journalism they've done as trainees. So that's fantastic that said, I, don't th- I think people have misrepresented themselves to, if they said to be a manager in a particular store, you need a degree, because doubtless there are managers out there who haven't got degrees. And similarly, you know, I didn't do a journalism degree, these guys didn't. You don't have to do a journalism degree uh, to get the job as a journalist, but it might be, well be useful. There are some things, like being a lawyer or being a doctor, where you have to have a degree in the first place. So I think the question for you is how can you make use of that journalism? It might be by coming along to fantastic events like this to kind of help you go forward into terms sort of journalism which you want to do. And I think it's a kind of wonderful thing that, you know, I don't know how old you are, but if maybe at the age of 18 you decided that you wanted to be a journalist, that's fantastic. The best way to do it is to do journalism, to write and write and write, to get in touch with people.
0: I actually did communications, which I guess would fall under the remit of this kind of non-traditional stuff. And I actually did quite a lot of metaphor. So I knew a lot of this and actually was very useful in my life. Um, but I think we were missing the point. I think what he was saying was, um, actually it's so many jobs and yes there are so many jobs that you do need a degree for and it's not because of you need to it's literally on the job application it says you must have a degree so that's I think what he was saying and perhaps not so much about journalism but was just saying widely should it not be the businesses who are changing and and they should be the ones doing that
12: I just wanted to pick up on that point because um, I've been both an employer and currently uh, looking for employment, and as an employer, I think it was just a lazy way of filtering applications. Say you might have to have a degree because it will it will take at least you know 30 or 40 percent, um, and as an employer, perhaps for people in their early jobs, it was a useful indicator of their ability to apply themselves or intellectual aptitude, but certainly after once I was recruiting people who had 10 or 15 years experience, I never even looked to see whether they had a degree. I didn't care. Uh, I wanted to know what they'd done and what, and what they'd achieved. In my own case, I was truly shocked um, as I, when, I, when I started working with an outplacement consultancy and they looked at my CV and the chap said, um, he said, ah, oh, good, went to a good university, which I did. Uh, I thought, I've, I've worked for 30 years. What on earth would it matter what university <laughs> I, I, I went to? But apparently it still does. So I think it is a, a very strong cultural Thing. And perhaps the, perhaps the only side benefit of the proliferation of education is it might force employers to think, rethink the value of just blindly saying, must have a degree, because not all degrees are, are equal. OK,
1: well, it's now uh, 5 to 10, and I'm afraid that's probably time for us to have to go and go back into the real world. It's been a fascinating, fascinating couple of hours. i really, really enjoyed it, and I hope you have too. And I hope uh, you will come again. And I'd like to thank our guests for giving us their time and their knowledge, thank you.